is a privilege to be with you today. Um, just such a delight. I really enjoyed being at the meeting before with your, your staff and your, your worship team. And I just thought, boy, you guys are really blessed. You have some people who just are, are dedicated to serving you and to serving the Lord. And, and um, I hope you know how blessed you are with, that, uh, with those people who are uh, so devoted to serving, serving God. Uh, I also was excited when I got this invitation and when I watched that video because I thought, yes, th this is how you should approach 1 John. I don't know about you, but when I uh, would read 1 John as a, as a younger, uh, younger person, as a young Christian, as a teenager, I would kind of come away a little depressed because it would say, you know, if you, if you sin, you're not from God, you're born of the devil. And I'd oh my goodness, I, I sin, and I, am I even a Christian? And so I would read it actually wrong. It's easy to read 1 John the wrong way. And, and what I discovered over time of spending a lot of time in 1 John is exactly what the video showed you, and that is that first John actually, I think five times, John says, I'm writing this to encourage you. I want you to know some things. I want you to be okay. And if that was his purpose, if I come away discouraged, I, I must have missed something somewhere along the way. Um, and so I'm so excited that this whole sermon series has been talking about, absolutely, there are things you can know, you can be confident of, and you should come away from this, this letter from this apostle uh, with, a, with a sense of confidence. And that's what we're going to focus on today is confidence. Confidence, and we're going to be in 1 John 3, uh, 19 through uh, 4, 6. You can turn there in a minute. You know, sometimes you have false confidence. We want to have confidence in life, um, but uh, sometimes it's just not there, right? Sometimes we're, we're confident the wrong way. I remember for a while we had a bunch of our kids in, in AYSO soccer. Eventually we stopped because when we had kids at six different games, on the same day, we just said, we cannot do this anymore. This was impossible. But before that stage, um, one, one season, they said, we need somebody to coach you five boys, under five boys. I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll coach, and one of my boys will be on. I think I had two of my boys on the team there for U5 soccer. And so I thought, well, I've never coached soccer before. I've played, but I've never coached. So before, I went to their training. I went to a blog. I looked up all these things on how to train U5 soccer boys and how to, how to, all sorts of drills and everything. I thought, yep, I'm ready for this. And I showed up the first day on the field and I um, uh, thought, okay, I've got these five drills I'm going to take the boys through. And then I started off and I said, okay, boys, come and line up here. And they all looked at me like, you know, what, what? And I, I didn't, it took me a while to realize why this was happening. They were under five. None of them had been in kindergarten yet. The concept of lining up was totally foreign to them. And the, fortunately, I was in a region of soccer where the parents, as I tried to coach these, these U5 soccer boys, they just laughed. They, just, they didn't care that we weren't getting anything done. We weren't learning. They just laughed. They weren't laughing. They were laughing at me because I'd keep saying, this is what it means to line up. You here, you here. And I would get them all lined up. And then within, you know, 10 seconds of the drill, they're all over the place. <laughs> My confidence as a coach was totally misplaced. I thought I was ready, and I wasn't. Um, um, sometimes we're confident and we're we're ready. Um, in, uh, in high school, um, so I, I, I've lived most of my life in Hawaii. For, for some reason, people are not very sympathetic to my plight as somebody who's <laughs> lived most of my life in Hawaii. But you should be sympathetic because it spoiled me for the rest of the world. You know, I just, <laughs> I left Hawaii and just thought, what, what is wrong with the rest of the world, you know? Uh, anyway, I, I went to high school in Hawaii. I went to the same high school, actually, as Obama did. Um, and our, our, the last day of our, our senior class, we had a picnic. And uh, so I had a group of friends who we were not athletes at all. Nobody knew us as athletes. We were kind of a collection of nerds and things like that. Didn't look like athletes. 
But we played on, on the side, not related to the school, we played Ultimate Frisbee. We played every weekend. We played Ultimate Frisbee all the time. If you didn't know Ultimate Frisbee, it's not an Olympic sport, would you believe? But um, we played it all the time, so we were pretty good at it. There were seven of my, my friends and I, and we were tossing a Frisbee around thinking, wouldn't it be nice to play Ultimate Frisbee, but we don't have another team. Seven people is about one team. Tossing it around, and suddenly, a member of the water polo team walks up, rippling abs. At our school, the water polo team were the studs. Okay, stud is like 1980s slang for those who are younger. These are, these are the, the, the most popular guys. And he said, hey, have you guys ever heard of a game called Ultimate Frisbee? And I was about to say something, and one of my friends said, wait, yeah, we've heard of it. You know how to play it? Uh, and he says, yeah. So then he says, let me get my friends. He goes over and gets all the football players, or he got, they managed to round up seven football players and water polo players. And just then, lunch ended, and 200 members of my senior class sat down on, at the edge of the lawn. We said, let's play. And he said, okay, we'll split up. And we said, no, we'll play you. And they stared at us like, what are you thinking? We're a bunch of wimpy guys, and we're going to take on these water polo players and football players. They said, you sure? Sure you want to play? We, yeah, we're sure. They looked so confident. I still, now this is pretty sad that I'm telling you this story 35 years later, but I still remember the look on their faces when we scored our first goal in about 20 seconds. They looked at us, oh my goodness, we've been had, you know? And, and the whole senior class is watching our game and we proceeded, to, actually what's really, really sad is I still remember the score 35 years later, 21 to 12, which is just an absolute wipeout in Ultimate Frisbee, so. When, when I meet friends from that game, we still talk about it to this day, how we beat the water polo guys. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was the last day of our, of our life in high school. So we, we had confidence, and we knew we were ready. There's a lot of situations like that, right, where we, we either have false confidence or we come into something with no confidence, and we really want to have true confidence, confidence in whatever good. You know, a terrible story this week. Um, you know, I, I hope you've prayed for the families of those people who died in the the submarine, um, people who talk about the CEO who died, they say he was a great guy, but he was super confident in his experimental method of building a sub. He was so confident that he was fine going down in it. He was overconfident, and his misplaced confidence, his submarine imploded and lost the lives of everyone on board. But actually, there's a more serious kind of... Uh, more serious uh, consequences to confidence, lack of confidence, overconfidence in our spiritual lives. Um, you see, we can, this passage is not going to focus too much on people who are overconfident. This passage in 1 John is kind of aimed at people who are struggling with a lack of confidence. And John is going is to try to tell us how we can be confident in our own walk with God and how we can be confident that the teaching we're listening to is good teaching, that it's right teaching, that it's true teaching. He's talking to people, as you probably have heard in past sermons, he's talking to people who are um, struggling with a, a lack of confidence, probably because of some false teachers who were very persuasive and then left the church. And so as people who are there in the church and they see these false teachers leave, they think, are we wrong? Are, are we the ones who are making a mistake? Or, or maybe those guys who left are the right ones. And so they're struggling with a lack of confidence and John wants to tell them, no, you can be confident. You can be confident in your walk with God. You can be confident in the teaching that you hear. Um, so this is really good news. This passage, my goal is, as, I, as I've been praying this week, 
my goal is that you walk away um, uh, feeling like, yeah, I can really trust where I stand with God. I can be confident that I'm okay with God, and I can be confident in the things that I'm learning from teachers. So we're going to learn how that works in just a moment as we look at Scripture. Um, before we do that, though, before we put the passage up there, I want to talk about what it looks like when you don't have confidence in your walk with God. Here's kind of what it looks like. We have kind of, there's kind of a cascade of no confidence, um, of descending things getting worse and worse when we lack confidence with God. What happens is my efforts fall short. If you remember, it was probably last week for you, the end of the last passage said, we need to love in word and in, tr- in deed and in truth. Not just in word, but in deed and in truth. And when we read something like that, we start to think, I don't do it. I don't match up. I'm supposed to love people in this way, and I don't. Uh, I'm supposed to fight sin, and I try, but a lot of times it doesn't work. I just don't match up. And so we begin to lack confidence in ourselves, in our own walk, in our own righteousness. And then what happens is because we're condemning ourselves, our hearts are condemning us, is the language John is going to use, then we start to think, God probably condemns me too because I don't feel good about myself, and God, God knows what I'm doing. He condemns me also. So even if we don't use those words, we feel that way. We feel like God condemns us, and then we don't want to spend time with him. I don't know about you, but I don't like to spend time with somebody who's condemning me, right? So if I feel that way, I don't go to God. I, at the moments when I should be asking, talking to him the most and asking him the most, I don't. I stop asking him because here's how it works with me. Sometimes I start to pray, and I think, oh yeah, the, the prayers of a righteous man avail much. Then I think, man, I'm not very righteous. Is God going to listen to me? I, I kind of doubt my standing with God, and so I, I, I sort of hesitate, or I pray, but I'm not really feeling a lot of faith as I pray. Now, if that keeps on going on, if I keep on having a situation where I'm feeling more and more distant from God, I feel like he condemns me, I move away, I stop praying, after a while, I can have very serious doubts in my status and my standing with God. I can start to really doubt my future with God. I can doubt whether he's really in me, whether Jesus is in me, whether the Holy Spirit is at work in me. I can doubt my eternal future. So there can be tremendous, uh, terrible consequences if we continue to lack confidence in our walk with God. There's this downward cascade that comes from a lack of confidence. We're going to look at the scripture, and it's going to show us how to have confidence in our walk with God. We're going to look at 1 John 3, 19. Let's go ahead and put that up, and I'll, let me pray as we dive into that scripture. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is so good. It is so true. It is so full of good news. Thank you that you love these people so much and that you care about them. You want us to have confidence before you. pray that you'd open our hearts to you as we hear the words of, that come from you through the Apostle John. pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's what John says. It's possible for us to begin to have confidence with God. So let's put that scripture up there. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, or I also like the word persuade right there. Some translations use persuade our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So when I have this cascade of no confidence... What's the first thing John tells me to do? He says, I need to persuade my heart. Um, now, do you hear what that, think about what that means for a second, that I need to persuade my heart. That means my heart does not want to listen to me, right? When you persuade someone, it's because they don't want to listen to you, so you feel like I've got to bring out some persuasive words. 
sometimes I need to persuade my heart to have confidence before God. Now, notice when it happens. Let's look at that scripture again. So I need to persuade or reassure my heart whenever our heart condemns us. So that's what I was talking about. Is I, I look at myself, I say, man, I don't love in word and deed the way I'm supposed to, in deed and in truth. I don't, I don't really defeat sin the way I'm supposed to. And so when that happens, my heart condemns me, and so I need to start persuading my heart. I need to persuade my heart. Now, notice what he says, that I, what I need to, the words I need to use to persuade my heart. I need to persuade my heart that God is greater than my heart, and he knows everything. That's what I need to persuade myself of. Now, when you first hear that, you might think, that doesn't help very much. You know what I mean? He knows everything? That means he knows even better than I do how bad my sin is. He know, there's things that I'm doing that are wrong or lacking in love that I don't even know about, and God knows those things. He knows absolutely everything about me. And I'm supposed to let that reassure me? I'm supposed to be reassured that God is greater than my heart? Greater than my heart? He's more powerful he has the power to judge me. So at first you may think, this is not very persuasive. But here's what John means, okay? He's, he's asking us to, think of when this, this letter first arrived in various congregations in Ephesus and surrounding. They didn't read it one verse a week, or even a paragraph a week, right? They, somebody stood up front and read the whole thing aloud, right? Maybe read it again aloud, the whole thing. So he's asking us to think of everything he's had to say here. So I need to persuade myself that it's God's opinion that really matters. God's opinion about me that really matters, not my opinion. My heart is wrong in its condemnation of me, okay? What is God's heart? Well, let's think back to earlier in 1 John. What have I learned about God's heart? God loves me. God is love. You know when it says God loves the world? Okay, John also wrote the Gospel of John, God sold the world. In, in John's letters, the world is often used to describe the world in its enmity towards God. Even when I, I was an enemy, God loved me. He genuinely loved me. Sometimes for me, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, oh yeah, God loves everybody. Yeah, me too. Yeah. No, no, he loves me. He genuinely loves me. And he loved me even when I was, wasn't even trying to get close to God. So God loves me even when I was an enemy. God does know that I sin. He knows everything. He knows that I sin. In fact, in chapter 1, it said God really doesn't want you to deny that sin. If you deny that sin, he says three things. He says, one, you deceive yourself. Two, you, uh, you lie about God, and then you make God into a liar. You're claiming that God is a liar. If you deny your sin, you are really open, opening yourself up for self-deception. You have to acknowledge your sin. So God knows our sin inside and out. He knows our sin, and he still loves us. At the end of chapter 1, God promised something because of our sin. He didn't promise to judge us. He said he promised to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two things, both forgive and then put us in the process of actually cleansing, actually dealing with our sin over the course of our lives. So the God who is more powerful in my heart and knows everything, is the God who set up this way of dealing with my sin. And in chapter 2, how did he deal with our sin? How does he deal with our sin? Well, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So why am I in good standing with God? Because I have the best advocate. I have somebody standing up for me, Jesus Christ, standing up and saying, this guy's mine. 
this guy is mine, he's okay. Not because he's so great, but because Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Now, does Jesus have to persuade God, saying, God, I know you're going to, the Father, you're going to destroy this guy, but I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you to, to not, no, that's not, God is the one who set this up. God is the one who sent his son as the advocate to die for our sins. So, so the solution to our lack of confidence is not to deny our sin, because we're tempted to do that, okay? We're tempted when, we're, when we keep on seeing sin or we keep on seeing our failure. We have two temptations. One is to say, maybe, maybe it's not really sin. Maybe I should stop calling that thing sin. That would make it easier on me, right? Or maybe, it's, maybe uh, my temptation is to say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love people, but I don't really have to love everyone. You see what I mean? Is we kind of downplay it. We either, we either deny that something is sinful or we downplay God's requirements on our li- lives to, to love other people. That's not the solution. Instead, the solution to confidence is to say, yes, I was a sinner before. I've, I'm forgiven. I continue to sin. I'm, it's going to be there. I fall short of loving in deed and in truth the way I'm, I'm expected to, the way God wants me to. I fall short, but God loves me. He set up this system. He set up an advocate um, who makes me right with him. Let me show you how this works with me sometimes. Okay, so I have, I have 10 kids, right? So I don't know how you feel as parents, but let's say you have two kids. How often do you feel like you fall short with those two kids? <laughs> oh, especially if you've been a parent for a long time. It's just all the time, right? It's just constantly you're thinking of how you fall short. And this is kind of a fit. Not so, maybe it's not so much you feel like you've sinned, but you feel like I didn't love enough or I don't love enough. I have 10, so I'm, it's just not... I, this weighs on me regularly where I see something in one of my kids and I think, oh man, I didn't do it, I didn't do it well. And they're great, I, I mean, I, I'm so proud of my kids, but I, I so often condemn myself for not loving adequately. And some of that should stimulate me to try to love better. So this message is not so much about trying, telling you to love better or stop sinning. That's not what this part of scripture is about. We should do that. But this part of scripture seems to be saying, yet you don't, you don't, you don't match up but you can be confident with God anyway. So when I feel that way, when I feel that sense of I, I didn't do this well enough, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professor. I, I, I try to love my students. I love books, to be honest, but I try to love my students. And, and, and sometimes I think, you know, I just didn't do it this semester with some student. I'll see if some student, I think, you know, I should have really reached out more to that student, and I feel kind of miserable. I don't feel real good. Those are the times when I, I actually tell myself, I think, you know what? yeah, I blew it. I'm not going to dismiss myself. I'm not going to excuse myself, but I'm not condemned. Um, I can persuade my heart. God is the one evaluating me. And as strange as it is to, to think about this, God evaluates me and says, you're mine. Because of Jesus, you are mine. I am not condemning you. This is such good news. Um, you know, it's in another passage, but... Um, <clears throat> Uh, in Romans. I, I was at a small college in Hawaii. Um, I, was, I wasn't the chair of the New Testament department. I was the whole couch. I was the entire, actually, I was the whole Bible department at this small Bible college um, associated with a church and uh, a big a mega church. The church was enormous. And uh, one day, a, a lady called in um, to the, trying to get in touch with a pastor at the church, and they happened to be at a, a meeting. And so the receptionist said, you know, this lady really sounds like she's got to talk to someone. She called me up at my desk and said, can you, can you talk with this lady? She needs some encouragement. 
And um, this church was incredibly evangelistic, lots of people coming to the Lord who had never, had never walked into a church before. And this was one of these people. I, I didn't know if she was a Christian yet, but she certainly was really interested. And what had happened is she had gone to a sermon and heard about Sabbath keeping, how it's good to take a day and honor the Lord with that day and not work that day. And, and she took it to heart. And, um, but then a month into this where she was making a commitment, something happened and she absolutely had to work on the, day, on the day she had picked for, on Sunday or whatever it was. And she was, her heart was condemning her. She said, I am in trouble. I need to talk with someone. She was really just sort of gut-wrenching. She thought something is terribly wrong. I'm, I mean, God is, God is going to condemn me for this failure. So I began talking with her on the phone and tried to find out a little bit about her past. And um, I started to share with her a similar passage in Romans 8. I said, you know what? God says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't condemn you. That's just like this passage. God is not condemning you. If you're in Christ Jesus right now, God is not condemning you. Isn't that, a, that's incredible good news. She was listening, but she wasn't buying it. She said, no, I heard, I heard another verse. She, she, had, she didn't have much exposure to the Bible. She said, I heard another verse, and this is what the verse said. It said, the wages of sin is death. It's death, it's death. That's how she talked on the phone, it's death. I'm, I'm in trouble, and I was trying to interrupt her because she was just going on on the phone condemning herself, and I said, yeah, you're right. That is a verse. Do you know what the rest of the verse is? You all know what the rest of that verse is, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what she said? There's this long pause on the phone after she had been talking a lot, and she said, that's good news. <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. I said, yeah, you're right. It's really good news. And it kind of woke up in me realizing, yeah, that's, wow, we have some incredible good news. John is saying the same thing here. We are not condemned. So when we see our shortfalls, when we see our failure to love properly, when we see that our fight against sin just doesn't succeed, in this passage, John is saying, you can have confidence. <clears throat> Now, what does it look like when we persuade our hearts? We, we tell ourselves that. We say, you know what? God loves me. He does not condemn me. My sin is wrong. I'm not going to dismiss my sin, but God loves me anyway. I may need to work on that, but that, right now I need to persuade my heart that God loves me and does not condemn me. Now, what, what's the result of that when I do that? When I persuade my heart, let's, let's look at that passage again. 319. 319, what's going to happen? We're going to know that we're from the truth. This is a place to remind ourselves, you know what? I really do believe the gospel. You see, if we keep on saying I'm not good enough, we're not believing the gospel. But if I persuade my heart that God is not condemning me, I'm believing the gospel. And I say, you know what? I, I am on the inside. I am one of God's children. I am, um, I am uh, part of the truth. I am from the truth. Look what else happens in, in verse 21. Let's move on to 21. Here's another consequence. <clears throat> A persuaded conscience, when I persuade my conscience, um, if my heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, um, and I'm, I have confidence to approach him and to ask, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. So when I am confident, when I persuade my, when I persuade my conscience that God is right and my heart is wrong, then I have confidence to approach him. I can say, yeah, I want to be with God. Isn't it nice to be with somebody who doesn't condemn you? That's what it's like when you go to God. And I can ask him things. I can go to God and ask him things because he is not condemning me. He is not trying to put me down. He is approving of me. <clears throat> now, you're probably tracking with me saying, yep, but now I just saw a verse I don't like. 
Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And we think, oh, no, now I'm back where I was a little while ago. I don't know if I keep his commandments and, and I do what pleases him. Oh, man. Is this why I don't get all my prayers answered because I'm not doing his commandments? Well, you know what? John knew you were going to ask that. And so look at the next verse. He says, you know, I'm actually going to set the bar kind of low here. Are you keeping his commandments? I'm only going to give you two right now. Here's his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Here's John is referring back to his gospel that he wrote. This is what Jesus said in the upper room. Pretty much two commands from Jesus in the gospel of John. Believe and love one another. That's almost, almost all you get in the whole gospel of John. Believe and love one another. So John says, you may feel like, again, you may feel like, but I don't. I, I'm, I'm not keeping all the, there's so many commands and I don't keep them. He says, wait, slow down. Here's, what you, here's how you can evaluate yourself. Do you trust Jesus? Yeah, I do. Not, not fully, not completely, not even very well so much, but I do, I really do. Do you love one another? Now, other books of the Bible focus on loving everybody. John tends to focus on loving one another within the body of Christ. Not that he would disagree that we should love everyone, but loving one another is other Christians. Is there something in your life where you, that shows you love other people, especially within the body? So here's what I want you to do for a second. Think of what your heart condemns you in, Okay. Right now, feel guilty for a moment. <laughs> Everybody feel guilty for a moment as you think of, I'm not loving well enough, I'm not defeating this sin. What, what, what do you feel guilty in? Okay, here's what God's response is. Are you trusting Jesus? There's some evidence in your life that you trust Jesus. Good! You are pleasing me. That's the commandment that pleases me. People at the shore, after Jesus fed the 5,000, they said, show us the work of God. We want to do God's works. And Jesus says, here's the work. Trust in me. Trust in Jesus. You're still struggling. God says to you, okay, you feel like you're not matching up? I have a second commandment. Love one another. Is there evidence in your life that you're loving some other believers? It's not perfect. It's not a perfect love. John isn't saying you have to love perfectly. He's just saying you can evaluate yourself and say, yep, I am loving people. Not perfectly. I fall short. But I'm loving other people, and I'm trusting Jesus. Okay. I'm pleasing God. I can do better, but this passage is saying you can be confident before God in your prayer life and in your approach to God if you look at yourself and say, yeah, it is there. I need to persuade my heart. I need to look at myself and realize that it's actually going on. The last verse of this section here in chapter, chapter 3, we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Actually, right before that, we receive from him whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on prayer here because you're going to get that in chapter 5. But generally, when we come across a verse like that, we always think, yeah, I can think of a list of things I've asked that God hasn't answered. In 1 John, here's what's kind of interesting. When he comes back to this in chapter 5, he's going to say, praying within his will, we pray for things that are God's will. And then he gives only one example of what one might pray for praying for a brother or sister who are in sin. Now, John thinks you can pray for anything. The Bible says you can pray for anything. But here's why I think some of us stop believing that God answers prayer is we're focusing on some big things that matter a lot to us. Praying for the spouse you want to get. Praying for healing. God could do those things. But what about the small things day to day? I think a lot of times we aren't praying small things day to day or we aren't remembering the small things that we pray for day to day. God says that as you persuade your, your conscience, you persuade your heart, you'll feel confident to go before him. You'll feel confident to pray for those things that, here's how I view it. I, there's some things I know God will answer. I think of uh, 
one time I was feeling very isolated from the non-Christian world. I teach at a Bible college, and I said, you know, God, I need, to, I need to share the gospel with somebody. Can you help me this week share the gospel with someone? I got an email from a former high school student. I, was, I used to be a high school teacher asking me about God. By email, I shared the gospel with him. He became a Christian. We never even talked on the phone. He became a Christian by phone that week. So I was praying something that was within God's will that I would have a chance to share the gospel. Here's something I prayed this week. Okay, let me be really honest. When I got the email that it was 1 John, I said, oh, now, why did I say, oh? Well, because I'm, I'm writing a commentary on the gospel of John, and I am so absorbed in the gospel of John. And every time somebody's asked me to preach somewhere, I'll say, okay, as long as I can preach from the gospel of John, because I'm spending all my time there. I love the gospel of John. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do 1 John. So here's what I prayed actually last week. I said, God, this isn't right. This is your word. It's, it's good stuff. Can you give me some excitement about this passage? Can you help me be excited that this passage is true? And by, by, you know, I think probably by Friday, I was thinking, man, this passage is amazing. This is so true and powerful. God, can you help me preach this faithfully? And, I, and he really did make that come to pass. So I want to encourage you to, um, when you see this thing about prayer, um, think about the many small things you can pray for. Pray for changes in your life. Pray for changes in the people around you that God wants. These things that happen here in the last, the last few verses, let's go back up to uh, the verse again there, um, and let's go to the final, verse 24. Is 24 up there? Oh, we don't have verse 24. Okay, so verse 24, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he remains in us from the spirit which he has given us. So the final way, what, what happens as we have confidence with him is we can also be confident that God's spirit is dwelling in us. As we see these changes in our heart, we stop condemning ourselves, we keep turning to God, we say, God doesn't condemn me. As I look at my life and I say, oh yeah, I am growing, I am loving God, I am trusting Jesus, that's evidence that the Spirit is in me. So I look at that and I say, you know what? God's Spirit is dwelling in me, and that's evidence that I am remaining in Him, in Jesus. Jesus is remaining in me and I am in Him. So we can be confident that we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, not necessarily because of any crazy stuff like the book of Acts, although the Spirit is welcome to do those kinds of things. The Spirit can do what he wants, right? But because I'm seeing these things that John is talking about, as I see those things happen in my heart, in my life, I know that the Spirit is at work. So this end of 1 John, I like this way that Karen Jobes says it. John tells us that um, even when we feel inadequate and incapable, if we understand that God knows the impulses of his children's heart better than they know themselves, that will silence that accusing inner voice. Okay, so that's the first part is we often lack confidence in our own walk with God. Chapter 4 moves into what do we do when we lack confidence about the teaching that we receive. So maybe you listen to podcasts, maybe you go to blogs, maybe you listen to pastors on the radio, and sometimes you decide, I don't think I want to listen to this person. But how do you know? How can you decide whether the teaching that is coming in should be something that you should listen to? Look at uh, 1 John 4, 1. John says we, we've got to be careful. We've got to watch out. Look at what he says. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, when he says test the spirits, he's talking about humans. Okay, so you might think, is he talking about demons? No. In the scripture, demons are not normally just called spirits. They're called either demons or unclean spirits. Here he's saying, test the spirit of a person, okay? 
Uh, and we know he's talking about people because he said, because some people are false prophets. Remember, there's a group of people who left the community who are false prophets, John says. And so we have to evaluate whether the teaching we hear is solid. Why do we have to be careful? Well, let's look at what he says about the false teachers. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Okay. Every spirit that did not... The, verse... Uh, yeah, let's go to the next one, verse 2. Thanks. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, now talking about a human, that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and is now in the world already. Ah, Antichrist! Did everybody switch over suddenly to, you know, Left Behind movies and Mark of the Beast on your forehead? Okay, don't. You don't want to go there, okay? Antichrist has more than one meaning, right? In 1 John, it's opposed to Christ. He's saying there is a spirit. Now, he's not talking about a, a demon, I don't think. here. Most people don't think he's talking about so much a demon. But rather, there's a spirit of teaching that is opposed to Christ in some way. So John is saying, you know, there are some people teaching that their, their spirit is opposed to Christ. Their spirit is resisting the true message about Jesus. But that means we need to take it very seriously because these are people who claim to be Christians that are teaching. John is talking about people teaching within Christian churches, and nonetheless, their teaching is anti-Christ. Look at some of the things that he says about the wrong teaching. It says they, verse 3 says, they, they don't confess Jesus. We'll come back to that. They're not from God, okay? Their message, their person, the message and person of these people is not from God. Verse 5 they speak from the world. The ultimate source of their message is from the world, the, the world that is hostile to God. It is not from God. They speak from the world, and they also speak to the world. In other words, their message is not really aimed at Christians. It's aimed at people outside. And it, their message derives from ideas in the world rather than from Scripture, from God. Verse 6. Let's look at verse 6 for a moment. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, what does John mean by us here? Here he's going back to chapter 1. He, when he says we and us in chapter 1, he says we were the ones there. Our, our hands handled the word of truth. I, I touched Jesus. I saw him. That is, the we here is we apostles. So these new teachers, John says, part of the way you can know them is they don't listen to us. They don't pay attention to us. They don't listen to our correction. And that's why that group of teachers left John's churches because they wouldn't listen to people like John who are eyewitnesses of Jesus. And finally, they're characterized by a spirit of error. That's a lot of reasons not to listen to them, right? And it's a lot of reasons to be careful and identify teachers who fall into that category. Look at what he says about the right teaching. Verse 2, he says, This teaching is from God. It is from the Holy Spirit. This teaching confesses Jesus having come in the flesh. We'll come back to that one. This kind of teaching, good teaching, beats the bad guys. Look at that in verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay, he who is in the world is like this antichrist spirit that is driving this teaching. But the one who is in you, John 15, Jesus abides in us. The one who is in you, Jesus, is more powerful than him. It's okay. You win. This is kind of an encouragement when, for these people in John's churches who they feel kind of little and lost because these really smart people left the church and they feel, they feel small. John says, no, the one in you is greater. The one in you is bigger. He's better. 
Verse 6, the right teaching listens to the apostles. The right teaching, verse 6, comes from someone who knows God. You can tell someone from God. Now, that doesn't mean they're a prophet, but their teaching comes from God. And it comes from the spirit of truth. Their teaching comes from the spirit of truth. That's a title given to the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. John just wrote his gospel, so he keeps using words from his words and phrases from his gospel. The reason to cling to good teaching is because of this. It's from God. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's true. We want to cling to the truth. We want to avoid false teaching for all the same reasons. We don't want stuff that is ugly and unfortunately also powerful. What does wrong teaching look like? We get some things here. Notice it doesn't listen to the apostles, right? Now, we can't call John up here and say, John, what do you think? <laughs> okay. But one characteristic of false teaching is a neglect of what the apostles say. And we have what the apostles said that was important, right? They recorded it in the scriptures. A neglect of scripture in teaching. If you listen to teaching and it seems like scripture is sort of an aside, probably not good teaching. It may, it may not even sound heretical, but if it's dismissive of scripture, have you heard a sermon? I don't, I, I'm not thinking of anything in particular, but have you heard a sermon where somebody starts with a verse and then they talk and you're thinking, they didn't even need to use the verse, they could just talk. There's a problem with that. That moves over into the category of, say, um, like motivational speaking, which is fine. But see, if I listen to a motivational speaker, I don't, I'm not obligated to listen. If somebody shares with me the words of scripture, I need to listen. It, this is from God. There's a kind of teaching that is dismissive, a kind of teaching that says, yeah, scripture says that, but we want to be so careful of listening to that kind of teaching because it's very easy to move more and more into ourselves becoming dismissive of the message that comes from the apostles. Notice that here in John it says it starts from the world and aims at the world. If you see teaching within the church, not necessarily this church, but as part of the body of Christ, that kind of, um, you can look at its source and say, he, that guy didn't really start from the Bible. He started from messages that are circulating about what's important and valuable in our world. He started from there. He didn't start from scripture. That's a problem, isn't it? Where is it going? John says these false teachers speak to the world. If people are just trying to make us look good to the world, if they're saying, I'm going to say this because it'll make us look better, it's going to look us, make us look cool, it's going to make us look not bigoted, that's a problem. Okay, that's teaching that is really aimed at the world rather than us. John says that it's um, teaching that doesn't emphasize the, um, that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, why does he say that? You think, was that the only thing that matters? John just says, as long as he says Jesus has come in the flesh. Well, two things, two reasons he's saying that. One is, most likely, the people who left are specifically denying that. Okay, so he's saying, no, those guys are wrong. They're denying that Jesus came in the flesh. But actually, there's another reason. That phrase... Everybody who affirms that Jesus has come in the flesh is incredibly rich. It encapsulates the whole gospel. John 1, Jesus is the one who was God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, when John says Jesus having come in the flesh, he's encapsulating belief in the deity of Christ, who came on his mission from the Father to the earth, became flesh. That is, he actually became human. He didn't just fake it. This is not fake humanity. Jesus actually became flesh. He became human. And he carried out the mission of God, which was to reveal Jesus is the full revelation of God. And Jesus is the one who came on a mission to defeat Satan and die for our sins. 
So when John says anybody who affirms Jesus having come in the flesh, he's, he's actually saying a lot there. It's somebody who affirms the deity of Christ and the mission of God through Jesus to save us from our sins. If people downplay that, if you're listening to somebody and that doesn't come up very often, it may be a problem. It may be somebody kind of downplaying, uh, downplaying scripture. Here's one that John doesn't say, but I just want to throw in there, and it may, it may have been going on in, um, in these churches. Is I would also say something very common nowadays is people who mystify scriptures and try to show you things that, that really aren't there. Okay? Now, a good Bible teacher is going to show you things that, aren't, that you didn't see at first, but hopefully when you're done today, if you look back at this passage, you can say, oh yeah, I think Gary was right. I think, yeah, I can see it right there. That's what I think good teaching should do. If it's amazing how many weird teachers are out there right now saying, well, let me tell you about the Greek and Hebrew, and then they say something, by the time you're done, it has no resemblance to the passage you're looking at. Now, I, I use Greek and Hebrew all the time, but, but if, if, they're, if they're bringing you to a conclusion about the passage that you never could find even afterwards, there's a mystifying of Scripture that I think we need to watch out for. John Piper says, don't set the bar too low in who you listen to. Listen to people who are truly God-centered. They're from God, like First John said. Christ-exalting. Bible-saturated, spirit-dependent, who bear, in their, who bear the marks in their lives of authenticity. That is, it's showing up in their lives. Well, what have we seen in this passage today? It's really good news, isn't it? The good news here is, first, you and I can be actually confident in our walk with God. We don't have to have this kind of thing where, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm failing, and I feel like God is condemning me. We can persuade our hearts. And that's, I think, one of the most important things I feel like God wanted me to read this the last few weeks in this passage. It's possible to persuade our hearts that God loves us and he doesn't condemn us. It's possible to persuade our, persuade our hearts that despite the high call, Scripture calls us to an incredibly high thing, we can look at ourselves and say, yeah, I don't match up there, but I trust Jesus. I trust him for my salvation. I trust him for my growth. I trust him for my walk with God. And I, I love people. It's not, I, I don't do very well at it. I fall short, but I do love people. And that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside of me. I can persuade my heart, and that becomes evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside of me. And that allows me to approach God and pray and ask him for help. Second thing is we can be confident in the kind of teaching we listen to as we weigh it against what John says is important. And one of the key elements here is, is teaching that we listen to. Is it faithful to what the apostles said about Jesus and about salvation, about God, is, our, is the kind of teaching we're listening to, is it clinging to scripture or is it just sort of saying, hey, here's a verse and let me go off, right? And second, um, is, that, um, is that teaching coming from a person who exemplifies the work of the spirit in their lives? Um, actually, I said second, but I should have said thirdly uh, because we also, uh, does it not only come from the scriptures, but does it display, does it talk about the central role of the gospel regularly. The good news is we can be so confident we can be not ashamed before God as he teaches us here in 1 John. Let me close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the goodness of this passage. Thank you so much for its truth. Lord, I pray right now that you would help each person here persuade their hearts, even right this moment. Help them to see that the Spirit is at work in them. Help them to look inside themselves and see that they are loving people and that more importantly, they trust in Jesus. And Lord, help us to be confident that you love us and you do not condemn us. 
and help that to drive us to you. Help us to choose good, good teaching that honors you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.